Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for being here this evening. I want to welcome you to the CME Symposium Optimizing Cardiovascular Risk Reduction in High-Risk Patients Through Lipid Management. My name is Peter Jones. I work at the Houston Methodist Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine. I do uh, weight management, but I also work in the Center for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention. I've been a lipid specialist uh, all of my career. And I've also been a member of the NLA from its inception uh, about 16 years ago. I'm going to be joined this evening by my co-presenter, uh, uh, Joseph Sassine, PharmD, who's a professor and vice chair in the Department of Clinical Pharmacology and a professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. And it's my job to just sort of set the stage for what we're going to try and talk about tonight, because as you heard in some of these skill questions, it's, you know, we all know how to use supposedly maximally tolerated statins in the right patients, but uh, the question is how do we move beyond that to lower LDL in high-risk patients? So in the evolution of guidelines, I mean, I think you all are well aware of this, and I was, a, I was around during the uh, ATP1 when we didn't have a lot of information. We went on a lot of scientific evidence that LDL cholesterol lowering would be a good thing. <clears throat> there was some uh, single drug treatments, bile acid resins and niacin, that suggested we might be on the right track. And of course, we got more information with the statin class of drugs, ATP2 and ATP3 came along, not only incorporating intensive LDL lowering with statins, but also you know, sort of targeting LDL cholesterol as the uh, biomarker we wanted to, to lower and also making a treatment goal for these patients. There was an update to ATP3 in 2004 with more information as we got data about higher intensity statin versus lower intensity statin in, in higher risk patients. Then, of course, the ACCAHA uh, came in 2013 with updates to the ATP um, lipid guidelines and using randomized clinical trial evidence, we'll talk a little bit more about their statin benefit groups. But around that time, the uh, ESC, International Atherosclerosis Society, even the Canadians came out with their recommendations. Most of them did still use the biomarker LDL cholesterol as the target of therapy and use it as goals. And the National Lipid Association also had their recommendations come out for how to manage uh, high-risk patients in, in, in 2014. Last year, um, there was an update from the ACC called the Expert Consensus Decision Pathway, which was designed to consider non-statin drugs added to maximally tolerated statins and under what situations. Hopefully, you saw that. Uh, the ACC uh, Expert Consensus Decision Pathway will be updated this year, very soon. And the ACE guidelines came out with even more intensive LDL uh, goals uh, this past uh, year as well, uh, based on information. We know that ACCAHA is in the process of updating their uh, guidelines. That probably will be another year or two before that uh, comes along. But the NLA did update their um, recommendations for how to use non-statin drugs uh, just a couple of months ago, and we'll talk about that. Uh, I think some of it's in the in the back of your um, of your take-home handout as to how to use um, uh, non-statin drugs in the right patient population. So in 2014, the NLA recommendations part one 
made it very clear that we felt that LDL cholesterol was not just the target of what we're treating to reduce cardiovascular disease, that you had to achieve certain levels in order to, to maximize that benefit. And of course, you know that it was both LDL cholesterol and non-HDL cholesterol that the NLA focused on as, as the primary targets of our, of our treatment. And apoprotein B was a, was a secondary target. But you can see the levels there for LDL and non-HDL in low, moderate, and high risk, and then, of course, in the very high-risk patients, which are usually those with established cardiovascular disease. The four statin benefit groups you all are familiar with, the one with established heart disease is group one, clinical ASCVD. The other three groups are essentially primary prevention patients, um, but high-intensity statins are clearly to be used in the highest-risk patients. So high-intensity statin to achieve at least a 50% reduction in LDL from baseline, in the age group between 40 and 75, moderate intensity statin if you're over the age of 75 with clinical ASCVD. The FH population in group two, a high intensity statin is preferred. In group three, which is primary prevention diabetes uh, in the 40 to 75 year old group, uh, again, high intensity statin would be used if they're high risk primary prevention diabetes and moderate intensity if they're less than 7.5% using the pooled cohort equation. And of course, the last group, group four, is pure primary prevention. They are determined solely on the pooled cohort equation estimate of 10-year risk being more than 7.5%. And that moderate or high-intensity statin could be your choices depending on age and other, uh, other factors. So you all are familiar with that. So as you look at, um, at what the ACC did last year with the expert consensus decision pathway, they said, yes, we're going to look at these four groups, these four statin benefit groups, and decide if any of these groups deserve the consideration for non-statin add-on drugs. And the first group they started with was stable ASCBD, which is the number one statin benefit group. And they divided them up into two groups, one without comorbidities and then with comorbidities. And of course, the same idea here is that you treat with maximally tolerated statins and that you try to get at least a 50% reduction in LDL from baseline. That's consistent with the ACCAHA guidelines. But they said if that reduction is not achieved and the LDL cholesterol is still above 100, then you might consider non-statin drugs. So this was an introduction of the concept of LDL thresholds. So what they're doing is bringing back LDL to the ACCAHA and just saying it's not about just using a statin and walking away, fire and forget. It is looking at what the response has been and deciding where the LDL went. And if it's still above a certain level, a threshold, that you might consider additional treatment. So they said exetamide, where you get a 20 or 25% LDL reduction, might be a consideration to add to maximally tolerated statin. And then a PCSK9 inhibitor could be considered, again, determining patient physician interaction, baseline LDL, and where you wanted to go. So I think that was, I think everybody sort of agreed that's a fairly logical way to do it, but it, it means you have to bring LDL back into the picture, you have to follow it, and you have to know what you're doing in order for that to occur. Then there was the other group, which is ASCBD with comorbidities. And in this one, the comorbidities could be ASCBD with diabetes, post-ACS, patients who have recurrent events on optimal statin treatment, those who have FH with established cardiovascular disease, uncontrolled risk factors, you know those, difficult to manage hypertension, continued smoking, 
patients with high LP little a or those with CKD, you know, stage three or four. And again, this is treated with maximally tolerated statin, expect at least a 50% reduction, but if that's not achieved, then take a look at where their LDL is. And if their LDL is above 70, then you might consider the addition of a non-statin drug. Again, considering exetamide with a 20, 25% LDL reduction or possibly a PCSK9, depending on where that LDL is and where you would expect to go. So this is what those pathways look like. If you look at the paper, it's sort of complicated. <laughs> and I don't, don't want it to be that way. It sort of starts at the top. Here's the patient, you know, those, for instance, with comorbidities and ASCVD. And then, yes, everything's achieved. Your LDLs, you know, got where you wanted to do, less than 70, and everything, and they tolerate a statin, then you just continue it. But if it's no, you go down through the middle. You consider the possibilities. They didn't get below 70. They didn't get greater than a 50% reduction then you consider exetamide or PCSK9, and then you look again at where they went. Did they achieve the expected response you wanted? In other words, did they go less than 70, for instance? And then you consider maintaining that treatment. If not, they get the option to refer to a lipid specialist, and that's what we are. And of course, group two is FH patients, those with LDLs more than 190, without clinical ASCVD. So in this expert uh, consensus decision pathway, treat everybody with maximally tolerated statin, which should be high-intensity statin. Uh, they suggest that lipid specialists should probably be dealing with these patients. Again, you look for in primary prevention uh, in uh, FH, you should consider whether their LDL cholesterol gets below 100 at least in, uh, in this situation. Many times it does not for those of you that treat FH. Um, then they could, said you could consider the addition of exetamide or PCSK9, depending on where their LDL was above 100 and where you wanted it to go. They thought it should be at least less than 100 in primary prevention in uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. Now, remember the age group here is between 40 and 75 with FH. Of course, you have other drugs to consider with FH at the bottom. Uh, those are more complicated, usually compound heterozygotes or double heterozygotes, sometimes the homozygote FH where you have MIPO, Mersin, lomidopide, and even LDLA phoresis. That's why they want lipid specialists to always be involved sometimes with their FH patients for long-term management. And again, this is the decision tree you see in the paper. Just wanted to show you what it looks like. I think most of you have, uh, have, have seen that for FH primary prevention. Now, this is uh, not the best way to look at this. That's why we have it in the, uh, in the back of your, your handout. This is what the NLA expert panel came out with last year and we've updated it, but essentially it's divided up into two sections. So one up on the top, um, uh, up here on the left is clinical ASCBD over here is, is, uh, is FH. Those were the two groups we felt uh, would be considered for the addition of PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. And the decision is based on threshold levels of, of LDL cholesterol. It does consider patients who are at very high risk. So in the NLA, it was ASCVD with comorbidities. With heterozygote FH, we did update that here recently with the update in the JCL. It's, it's online, it's not out yet, but it's online. If you look at the two, uh, 2017 uh, expert panel update, they divide FH into three groups, primary prevention, secondary prevention, and then a third group is younger patients. 
I remember the uh, expert uh, consensus decision pathway by the ACC doesn't talk about treating FH with any of these non-statin drugs under the age of 40. So the NLA felt that there was a need under the age of 40 to consider the possibility that there could be high-risk FH patients who are primary prevention who deserve non-statin drug treatments on top of optimostatin uh, therapy. So we do uh, go through that. Now, of course, the NLA talks specifically, it's in the purple section here, on statin intolerance, which unfortunately never really gets put into anything. They talk about maximally tolerated statin. Well, what if that's, you know, zero milligram statin? What if it's 10 milligrams of, of atorvastatin three times a week? Well, that's obviously a person who cannot tolerate uh, high intensity or even moderate intensity statin. So, you know, determining statin intolerance is a difficult issue. And the NLA does have uh, criteria for how to manage statin intolerance and what to do. And of course, most of you know that. But but you should try to maximize as much statin as you can uh, in, in all patients at, at high risk. But even if maximally tolerated statin is very, very little statin, there is a need for non-statin drug use in some of these high-risk patients. Uh, Jennifer Robinson put it together a little bit of an information. Uh, this was published last year in, uh, in Jack. Uh, determining when to add non-statin uh, therapy, and she looked at it from the concept of number needed to treat. And her idea was using thresholds again, but she said what you need is, is to see where you want to go and then look at what you expect from the treatment you get. If you're starting with an LDL of 190 and you're, you, you want their LDL to go below uh, 100, you're not going to get it with ezetimibe. That's only going to give you a 20 or 25 percent reduction. If that 20 or 25% reduction gets you to a reasonable goal for that patient, that's a cost-efficient way to do it. The number needed to treat can be very low if your threshold is, say, 130 and you want to go uh, uh, lower. But the higher your baseline LDL, the more you need a greater reduction from baseline. And the PCSK9s can become very reasonable in number needed to treat with a higher baseline. So, it's a really good paper to consider, and it does consider these thresholds, and I think intellectually we all understand that. Your LDL is 105, and you want it to go below 100. Well, ezetimibe would be an easy way to do that. Um, but of course, many of us consider lower is better, and why not just go as far down as you can go? Well, that's probably reasonable, too, based on clinical decision and what your patient determines. But she was using number needed to treat, which is one way to look at it. You know, the evolution of lipid treatment is, is really getting quite amazing, and it will, in the next decade, be more amazing than what we have. Statins have been probably one of the most amazing preventative drugs we've ever come up with, but we still have bioacid resins. Uh, we still have cholesterol absorption inhibitors, exetamide. Uh, we do treat triglycerides with fibrates and omega-3s, but the PCSK9s and the use of a technique like monoclonal antibodies, and soon, some of the drugs will be with antisense and small interfering RNA. We will be able to treat very specific lipid problems and get profound reductions using these novel delivery techniques. And the PCSK9s are sort of evolving that, uh, that treatment for us over the usual once-a-day oral pill kind of approach that we've gotten used to over the years in lipid treatment. And there's still plenty of unmet need in patients with high LDL. And a lot of this unmet need isn't that we don't necessarily have the right drugs, it's just the patients sometimes don't get them. Amazingly, patients with type 2 diabetes, most of them, particularly primary preventions, that's statin benefit group three, 
aren't really taking enough statins. Amazingly, too, patients discharged from the hospital, this is 58% of Medicare patients and 70% of commercially insured beneficiaries, don't even fill their prescription after an MI for their high-intensity statin. So they only fill it. So there's about 30 to 40% that don't even fill it. Amazing how that doesn't quite get incorporated into the patient's treatment paradigm. I'm sure it's not that bad for antiplatelet drugs and other things that they leave the hospital on, but the statins. And of course, the FH patient population is our, in our wheelhouse, and they are very high-risk patients, and they need intensive treatment. And I think we are the ones that identify these patients and start them early and, and, and incorporate a more intensive uh, approach because their risk of cardiovascular disease is very, very high, and they have very premature cardiovascular events. So the PCSK9s have, have given us the opportunity to have add-on drugs that are well-tolerated with very appreciable LDL reductions. So there are two of them, as you know, monoclonal antibodies, alirocumab and evolocumab, that the, uh, was approved to be used on top of maximally tolerated statins in patients with ASCVD and heterozygote FH. That's the indication. There's no specific mention of statin intolerance, just maximally tolerated statin uh, in patients who need additional LDL lowering, and again, there was no definition about what additional LDL lowering meant either. So that's why the expert consensus decision pathway and the NLA had to come in and sort of make some sense out of what additional LDL lowering really meant and where the benefit would probably be. Um, we do know that uh, the dosing, I think most of you are familiar with the dosing of these, right? Has everybody at least prescribed one patient with a PCSK9? We've got two doses of valorocumab and two doses of evolocumab. The evolocumab is once a month with one dose, and it's uh, every two weeks for the other two um, uh, dosing compounds. And the safety is not as long, much as we would like. There's a lot of phase two data. The Odyssey long-term and the Osler studies gave uh, two-year safety data, uh, compiling uh, information on patients. The Fourier was a 2.2 mean year follow-up study, positive, but still only 2.2 years. But it does look like they're safe. The only problem is occasional injection site reactions, but we don't think there's any abnormalities like new onset diabetes. The question about neurocognitive function abnormalities with low LDL does not appear to be the case with Ebbinghaus as a subgroup analysis of the Fourier. Uh, there's still a question about cataracts and, uh, from low LDL, but that needs to be determined longer term. Um, so I, I think we do have reasonable safety data on these, on, on these drugs, but we hope to get, uh, to get more to make you feel more comfortable. Probably the most challenge with these is, is uh, uh, barriers to access. Uh, have any of you tried to fill out a prior authorization for a PCSK9? It's the most frustrating thing in the world to do and it mostly deals with documentation. The NLA has published uh, uh, our own barriers to uh, uh, prior authorization to PCSK9s in the Journal of Clinical Lipidology. Uh, there's been town halls by the American Society of Preventive Cardiology to try to improve access and teach uh, providers how to make that prior authorization less painful. Uh, and it looks as though lipidologists do get some preference to the prior authorizations, cardiologists too and endocrinologists, but the general internal medicine and family practice uh, seem to have a much harder time uh, uh, getting authorizations, even if they fill out the documentation well. So it, 
it is a challenge, and these are something that you have to work on. It's not impossible to get. Um, you know, we've gotten in our institu institution up to 100%. We don't get anybody denied, but boy, it does take a while to get it. But if you give up, they are denied. But uh, if you don't, you'll, you, you'll get there. So we're now going to go through and sort of with that background, we're going to go through some cases. And we're going to have four cases. We're going to back and forth uh, between uh, Joe and me. And Joe's going to present the first one for you.